0: We start in verse one and it says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus describes himself here as uh, the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, you may remember back when we finished up our Advent series the last week in December, we finished up with Christ, right? And we looked at the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, and, and we saw that John begins the whole book of Revelation with this greeting. It's, it's a peace wish. And it says that it came from him who, ha, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And as we talked about that, we recognized that that was a uniquely Trinitarian statement. That statement right there at the very beginning of the book of Revelation is talking about the Trinitarian nature of God, that he is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all three persons, one identity, one God. And we talked about that. And as we talked about that in in January, what I reminded you also is that if we really want to understand the imagery here, if we want to understand what's written, it's important to remember what kind of book we're reading. Revelation, among other things, is an apocalypse, and one of the most prominent traits and tools of apocalyptic literature, whether it's the apocalypse in the book of Revelation, or in Daniel in the Old Testament, or even extra-biblical apocalyptic literature, one of the most common traits of that type of genre is the use of Old Testament prophecy and symbolism. And in this right here, we see both. Throughout our Bibles, the number 7 is a number that denotes perfection. So when John refers to the seven spirits, it's a reference to the perfection of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, this seems to be pointing us back to the Old Testament prophecy, back to Isaiah chapter 11. I'm not going to have it on the screens for you, but I will read it to you here. You see, in in verse 1 of chapter 11 in Isaiah, we're told about the promised Messiah, that there shall come forth from the shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear, bear fruit. And that's that's imaging Christ. That's saying, hey, you're, you're going to get this Messiah. And then in verse 2, it continues and says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And and what many scholars contend is that the intent there is to show us, both both by the symbolism of the number seven, which denotes perfection, and by referencing the Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah, where we're told that the sevenfold Spirit of God will rest upon this awaited Messiah, that the intent that it's showing us that the Holy Spirit's divine work in bringing about God's grace and peace to his people, to to Christians, is through his interactions with the Son. You see, back in chapter 1 of Revelation The seven spirits denoting the Holy Spirit are before the throne of God. But here in chapter 3, we're told that Jesus has the seven spirits. And that's not a contradiction. It's it's not a a change in what's going on. Rather, what it's showing us is the intimacy of their relationship. It's showing how closely together they are. the, The relationship between God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And and at the same time, we see that Jesus is the one who has the seven stars. And I'm sure you guys remember, because we saw it with the church at Ephesus, the seven stars in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, are the seven pastors of the seven churches. They're the seven angels is the exact language, which we know are the, the elders, the shepherds, the pastors. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus is intimately involved with the Holy Spirit and with the pastors. The, the, the messengers of these churches, which means that he is going to know these churches intimately well He, he knows them better than they know themselves He's qualified to give this report that's that he's giving and and as we move into the second half of verse one Jesus gives them his report and and as we read that report the simple fact of the matter is that the reality is painful Things aren't going as well as they expected. Jesus says I know your works You have a reputation for being alive, but you are are dead. Listen, this this church thought that they were doing well. They 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 thought they were doing better than well. They thought they were alive. I mean, this this church, it, it was kicking. They were the first alive church of Sardis. You know, they they had a great turnout every single Sunday. People were showing up. They had an awesome kids program. Their their worship was top notch. I mean, they had the nicest harps, the newest style of tambourine. They knew how to worship. The church at Sardis was walking around. They had members wearing the First Alive Church of Sardis t-shirts. They had the five. They were Church of Sardis bumper stickers on the back of their wagons. This church was alive. They were known for being alive. But they weren't had a reputation for being alive, but they weren't. In fact, the word that's there that's, that's translated reputation, that's onama. It, it literally translates name, right? Name, and it's used 228 times in your New Testament, but there's only one place where it's not translated as name, and that's right here. This church had a name for being alive, but they were dead. Jesus said, You're dead. And as we see that, I think we ought to be asking the question How does a church die? Because that isn't spelled out in our text. As we we look at our Bibles here, we don't see it saying that Jesus doesn't say, You know, you did this and now you're dead. At at the same time, he, he doesn't say, You didn't do this and now you're dead. He simply says, You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So let's consider this for a minute. How does a church die? As a a campus here, we're a fairly young church, right? We're two and a half years old. So as we look at the church in Sardis, how do we ensure that we don't end up there? I want to propose something to you here. Each week as we've been reading these letters... Um, I've been telling you, and I'm going to tell you again at the end of this letter, that that these letters, as much as they were for these individual churches, they were also for us. And I believe that if if you want to know how a church dies, all you need to do is read these seven letters and then completely ignore what they say. Let me show you. In the first letter to the church at Ephesus, we saw Jesus calling us to keep our first love, our, our love for Christ, at the center of everything we say and do. What's our motivation? It's got to be Jesus. Why do we gather? Jesus. Why, why do we serve? Why do we love? Why do we do anything that we do? Jesus. Our love for Christ, our love for Jesus is the core of what we do. And if we ever lose that, we're dead. In the second letter to the church at Smyrna, we saw Jesus encouraging his church toward faithfulness in the, per, in the uh, presence of, of persecution. The call was to remain faithful, but why did Jesus call them to be faithful? Because when things get hard, when persecution comes, it, it's, it's easy to just give in, but a church that caves is a church that doesn't trust God. It doesn't trust the promises of god. It doesn't trust the promises of scripture It doesn't trust the promises of jesus the church that surrenders in persecution is a church that ceases to exist It's a dead church In the third letter to the church at pergamum. We saw a church that was compromising It, it was bending the gospel with, with with the teachings of the society in which it lived And that's a recipe for disaster Church, hear hear me on this. The the gospel is simple. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And if you add to the gospel, it's not the gospel anymore. If you subtract from the gospel, it's not the gospel. A a church must remain faithful to the word of God. It must stand firm on the foundation of the inerrant word of God. Inerrant that, That word means without error. We have to stand firm on the foundation of Scripture. If a church compromises, it's dead. Then last week in in the fourth letter to the church at Thyatira, we saw a church that was tolerating sin. They, They had allowed it to fester. They had allowed the sin within their church to grow to the point that Jesus gave them one of the strongest rebukes of any of the churches that we've read so far. You see a church that allows sin to continue unchecked is not a loving church. Sometimes we think that, right? We think we love them too much to like confront them with this. But it's not loving to let somebody walk off the edge of a cliff. And it's not loving to let somebody walk in sin. The church has a, a responsibility to confront sin. And the goal is to lead your fellow Christians back into repentance, back into faithfulness to Christ. A church that allows sin to continue unchecked is is not a loving church. It's a dying church. And then we come to this letter. In in the letter to the church at Sardis, we see a church that's never really completed its mission. They were a church that, that was living off its past, incomplete accomplishments. And Jesus says that they're dead. You see, the, the city at Sardis was famous as a royal city, but, but now it was nothing. And the citizens of that city were living off their past fame. It uh, seems like that attitude had kind of infected the church. They were looking back at the glory days, at the big buildings that they had, at the, the massive things that they had done, but had forgotten to go out and proclaim the gospel. They'd forgotten to go out and live the mission that Christ had set before them. They didn't realize that the task wasn't over. And that's another sign of a dead church. We started this series with the, the Ephesian church, and the first bullet in that series, the first kind of takeaway that I wanted you to see was that Jesus celebrates the winds. You guys remember that? We talked about celebrating the winds. And there's a time and a place for that. But every time we celebrate the winds, we need to have a peak to peak mentality. What do I mean by that? I mean that as we stand on the peak of one victory with Christ, we look ahead to the next victory, we look ahead to the next peak, and we're looking to see the mountain that Christ is placing before us, that he wants us to climb for him as we serve him. There's no room in ministry to take a victory lap. There just there just isn't, because there's always work to do. And until Jesus returns, we have a mission And that mission isn't complete until we hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That was the problem for the church in Sardis. A a church that is living off its past fame is a dead church. A church dies when it ignores what we're seeing in these letters. That's what we're seeing. A church is dead when that's gone. But as we move forward into verses 2 and 3, I want you to see that Churches don't have to die. In fact, Jesus makes it pretty clear that while the church has received this negative report, there's still a chance to respond. And as we look at these two verses, I want you to see that the response is prescribed. Take a look with me, verse 2 and and then verse 3. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. In these two verses that we see right here, we can see five imperatives that that really can be grouped into two clear instructions for the church. First, Jesus says in verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. That's the first instruction. The the word wake up there in the Greek is Gregoro. It means to be awake, to be alert, to be on the lookout. This is a forceful two-word command. Wake up! Have you ever fallen asleep at the wheel when you're driving? Long road trip, you fall asleep driving? I remember uh, back when I was enlisted, I was stationed over in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and I was on the Interstate 10 on my way from Pascagoula to Mobile on a Friday night. It had been a long week. I was just going to see a movie, and and I fell asleep at the wheel, and as the truck that I was driving started to veer off the road, it hit those rumble strips that are on the side of the road, and that woke me up, and I veered back into my lane. It scared the Dickens out of me. That's kind of what jesus is saying here he's 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 getting at this wake up be awake get alert the church had fallen asleep they had stopped being the church they were content just to stand on their past victories their past achievements and, and jesus is calling them to get up and get back to work there was a fraction though in the church that hadn't completely died And Jesus wanted to stir them up to strengthen themselves and get back on the mission that he had set before them. When he says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God, um, you you get the sense that that they had started but stopped, that they had begun, they'd had some success, they'd had some victories, and then it had all just kind of ceased because they'd settled. And this is an important reminder for us as a church here in Alberta. Because we, as a campus, we're a young church, and and we've actually had some success. We've we've had some wins. I mean, we are we 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 started in a high school. Now we're here renting this space, and we're on the cusp of, of getting permanent facilities as we merge with First Baptist right down the street. But we can't let that be the goal. We we can't look at these successes and think. We've arrived because we haven't. Because buildings are not the mission. It's not about a building. I think you guys know that better than most churches. I, I really do. And it's not about a certain number of people. Like, if we fill this place out, that's not the goal. That's not the mission. Programs on Sunday or Wednesday, those aren't the mission. Our mission is the Great Commission. Our mission is to live out the command that Jesus gave us that we recite every week to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded us. And that mission is going to continue until we get to see Jesus in glory or Jesus comes in glory back to us. So we have to be alert and we have to be on mission. The second instruction that Jesus gives after he calls the church to wake up is connected to the, ver- the the first. He says in verse three, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. And, and as we see that command right here, as we look at that command, it's, it's important to recognize just what is meant by the word remember there. Because because that Greek word there, nemnuo, is is a present tense active verb. It, it it means to keep in mind, to keep thinking about, to to retain in your memory. Remember here is means that that it's constantly supposed to be going on in your mind, like it's just on on repeat, on on loop. Have you ever tried to memorize something? In uh, in aviation, we have these bold face procedures that we have to memorize. They're, they're emergency procedures. And, and when you go to try to memorize something, you might try just repeating it over and over again. You might try writing it down or making flashcards that you have to study, right? And so we, we have emergency procedures for situations where emergency arrives in the aircraft and we have to deal with them. So we have, for example, if, if we were on the, uh, the aircraft carrier and we're launching on, off the carrier and we, we have uh, a loss of thrust on the catapult stroke, we have an emergency procedure for that because you have very little amount of time uh, to react. We call that the emergency catapult flyaway procedure. This is a test. Let's see if I can still remember this. Throttles max, rudder full against yaw roll, emergency jettison button push, maintain 10 to 12 degrees, pitch attitude with waterline symbol, do not exceed 14 units AOA, AOA tone. If unable to arrest yaw roll or stop, settle, eject. That's the steps. And you say it that fast because that's how fast it happens. We have these emergency procedures because you have about three seconds from the loss of... Of thrust to get that airplane flying or get out before it crashes into the water. You launch 40 feet above the water. So you have these bold faced procedures that you have to memorize. But you know what happens if you don't constantly remember, if you don't constantly rehearse that in your mind? You start to why fr- I was just nervous saying that procedure to you because I haven't been studying that procedure because I'm not flying anymore, right? When, when you don't constantly remind yourself of something that you've memorized, it slips away. You forget it. Who's, who's memorized a Bible verse in the past? And if I asked you to say it right now, you couldn't say it. Like, I'm raising my hand because that's me, right? Like that, You have to rehearse it. It's true of emergency procedures in the aircraft. It's true of words you have to learn how to spell. It's true of Bible verses you're trying to learn. And it's true of the gospel. So here we we see Jesus telling the church to remember, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. What did they receive and hear? The gospel, the commission to go and share that gospel, the commission to make disciples. They had a mission to make disciples, but instead of living on mission, the church was sitting back and living on the glory of the good old days. They were proud of their history, but disobedient in their lives. So Jesus says, remember the commands, keep them, and repent. In essence, he's saying, get up off your blessed assurance and get back out on mission. That's the response they need to have to this report. But in the second half of verse 3, Jesus gives them a warning. Take a look with me, he says, in in the second half, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Now, this warning sounds fairly vague, right? Like he's basically saying, hey, I'm coming back. But there's more to the warning than just that. You see, this church was in a specific location, and and as a people in Sardis, they were very proud of their city. They were proud of their history, but that pride ignored one minor but major important part of their history. You see, the people of Sardis prided themselves on the impenetrability of their Acropolis, their their fortress, their, their citadel up at the top of the cliffs. And what they forgot is that even though they thought it was impenetrable, they'd been defeated. Cyrus of Persia, the history records the story. Um, when it happened, apparently there was a a soldier standing watch on the wall late in the night who fell asleep. And as he fell asleep, his head started to nod down. As his head nodded down, his helmet fell off down, down the wall, down to the base of the cliffs. The soldier knew the kind of trouble he would get in if he was found out that he had lost his helmet because he fell asleep. So he looked around, noticed nobody was watching him, and went down from the wall. Down through a secret door at the base of the cliffs Grabbed his helmet came back in and went back to his post like nothing had happened But what he didn't know is that some of cyrus of persia's soldiers Who were encamped below the citadel had been watching him And they saw the secret door History says that the next night they came up in the middle of the night through that door Took the city And that city was never independent again Cyrus defeated him from, from Cyrus. It went off until about 500 years later, the Romans were the rulers of Sardis. You see, this is in essence the same warning coming to the, that came to the church at Ephesus. And the church in Sardis would have recognized this. What Jesus is telling them is if they don't wake up, if they don't remember what they heard and what they received, if they don't repent and get back on the mission that Christ had given them, he was going to come in and shut their church down. The the warning that Jesus gives sounds vague until you understand the history of Sardis. These, These people thought they were alive. By all outward appearances, they were. But Jesus is about to bring this church to its end unless they repent and get back on mission, just like Cyrus brought Sardis to an end. They needed to get back to being the church. And for us today in 2020, as a church here in Alberta, this should give us a powerful reminder of the importance of actually staying the church, of actually being the church because it would be really easy to to grow in numbers, to gain facilities, to, to do good deeds in the community, to look by all outward appearances like we are alive as a church, but actually be spiritually dead, because we can experience successes, like we can, and we can keep But if we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, if we don't keep our eyes fixed on the gospel, fixed on the mission that he's laid before us, all of those successes are irrelevant. Because we'll be reliant on ourselves, not on Christ. We'll be reliant on programs, not Christ. We'll look alive, but we'll actually be dead. And here we can see Jesus saying that like Cyrus of Persia, He will come unexpectedly and bring an end to the church. May that never be so of us. May Christ never have to come to us because we think we're alive, but we're actually dead. So Jesus gives them this warning, and then in a a moment of what seems to be like a a tender love for his people, his tone softens a bit. And you can see that he reminds them of the good that, that awaits his faithful people. And as we look to verses 4 through 6, I want you to see that the reward is promised. Jesus says in verse 4, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Just about every age, you can find churches that outwardly look alive but are actually dead. And what I find so incredible is that God in his goodness and his mercy to his churches, to his people, he allows some faithful people still in those otherwise dead churches. Some people who haven't succumbed to the death that's all around them. And that's what we're seeing here in verse 4. They, there were some Christians who, though their church family was dead, they were still alive. They were still active in the mission that he had placed before them. And you can almost feel G- Jesus' love for them as he says, they will walk with me in white. The, the, the dead members of the church, the dead church they're, they're they're dead. they're not walking anywhere right? They're not mobile. they're not going anywhere because they're well dead but but those who have remained on mission, who have not soiled their garments they' they're still mobile and they're gonna walk with Jesus. and the imagery that we see there is is it's talking about kind of this intimacy. This close relationship that they're going to have with Jesus as they walk with him. And, and when we when we see that, that they're they're clothed in white, and we consider the greater context of this letter, and the greater context, the book of Revelation, where seven different times we we see people walking in white or clothed in white. And we think about Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where it describes the people of God in heaven. And it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb when we see that context for for what Jesus is saying here, it becomes clear that the promise is not just intimacy with Jesus. It's intimacy with Jesus in heaven. He says, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And as I read that verse, I, I can't help but think, man, I want Jesus to say that about me someday. I want Jesus to say, Josh, will walk with me in white, for he is worthy. Now, we know that there's nothing you can do to earn salvation. That is a free gift from God. We know that the only way to earn salvation is for Jesus to have shed his blood on the cross, to give us his righteousness. That's not what worthy means here. When Jesus says that they are worthy, it's in the sense that they have resisted the pressures to walk away from their faith. They've resisted the urge to cave to persecution. They they haven't compromised. They haven't abandoned the love that they had for Christ and his mission. They've fought the good fight. They've finished the race. They've kept the faith. They've lived a life worthy of the calling that they've received. That's what worthy here means. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Don't you want Jesus to say that about you too? I I hope you do. But as Jesus continues in this letter, in verse 5, you can see that the reward that he promises even more clearly Jesus says, the one who conquers, and and remember that that means the one who endures, the one who remains faithful, the one who remembers what they had seen and heard, who keeps it and repents. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In this verse, we can see three promises. These promises are for you and I as much as they were for the church in Sardis. So first, we can see that the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. And and as I said seven times in Revelation, we see these white garments being worn. And every single time, what we get the image of is that that is kind of um, the uniform, if you will, for those who live in heaven. It's their purity that they have because of Christ's blood. Second, Jesus says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And and this idea of a divine... uh, A divine book dates all the way back to Exodus chapter 32. That's kind of the first mention we see of it, where in Exodus 32, Moses is praying that if God would not forgive Israel, he would rather that God just blot him out of the book that you have written. You see, what it was is in ancient times, if you were a member of a city, if you were a citizen of that city and then you were punished by exile, you were kicked out of the city, they would take your name, they would blot your name off of the civic register. They would remove your citizenship from you. And here Jesus is saying that that will never happen to a citizen of heaven. Now, now just as a quick aside, I, I don't want you to read something into the text that's not here. Because I think you can see this and maybe start getting an idea of something that, that isn't there. Um, this isn't saying that if you're a Christian, if you're a citizen of heaven, you can somehow lose your salvation. Okay, this, this text isn't speaking from silence here. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that, hey, this common practice in your life here on earth, it's not a practice in heaven. You can't lose your citizenship in heaven. You can't lose your salvation. This is an assurance. It's not meant to cause you to worry. It's it's meant to comfort you. And then third, the third promise that Jesus says is that I will confess his, the, the one who conquers, name before my father and before his angels. This is clearly a reflection of the promise that Jesus made on earth In his own ministry, when in Matthew 10.32, he said that everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. This is an expression of belonging. It's an expression of acceptance. Jesus is standing there before God the Father, before the creator of the universe. And he's saying, this one belongs here. He's mine. I never went to any of my graduations. I didn't go to my high school graduation. I didn't go to my college graduation. I didn't even go to my seminary graduation. Just never went. Uh, I'm going to retire from the Navy at, at the end of this year, and I'm not even completely sure if I'm going to have a retirement ceremony. I'm, I'm just not one for big ceremonies, but I think we've all been to a graduation ceremony of some variety, or we've seen one on TV, and we've all heard the names called We've heard the entire crowd just erupt in in applause and a roar at the end of it. I haven't gone to my graduation ceremonies. I've I've never heard my name called out when I crossed a stage, but this I can tell you. One day, I, I want to hear my name called by Jesus before God himself, before all the angels. I want him to say, Josh is mine. Josh belongs here. That's the picture that's being painted here. I hope you do too. Three promises, and they're meant to encourage you. Three promises, and really they're they're all promising the same thing. It's the same promise that we see at the end of every one of these letters. It's the promise of eternity in heaven. It's the promise of eternity with Christ. This letter to the church that's dead is promising life. If only we heed the warning that Jesus gives. And so we come to the end of the letter and and we see the plea that's at the end of every one of these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a plea to hear what Jesus is saying, to, to take it and apply it to our lives, to let it encourage us and correct us, to let it guide us as we go forward. So today, as as we get ready to walk out the door and we get ready to go out into the world, I, I want to ask you, are you hearing what the Spirit says to the churches? Are, are you hearing what Jesus is saying? I'm going to give you a few quick questions to to walk away with. I don't want you to answer them right now. I want you to kind of think about them. I want you to meditate on them as we go to pray, as we get ready to pray over these questions and, and, and just the time that we've had here. Think about these questions. Think about them as you go out throughout the rest of the week. Five questions to consider for you, and then we'll be dismissed. First, do you have an appearance of life? But in reality, you're dead You're spiritually dead You look alive on the outside You look like a Christian on the outside But inside, you're just spiritually dead Is there any area of your life, of your faith That might prompt Jesus to say to you Wake up Third question are you looking at the spiritual progress you've made in the past and just sitting content? Yeah, I, I raised my hand that one time, I prayed that prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart, I was baptized and there's been no progress since then. You're just happy to sit back. Fourth question. One day, Are you going to hear Jesus confess your name before the Father, before his angels? Are you going to hear him say, that one's mine. He belongs here. Last question. As you consider all of these questions and you consider your answers What are you going to do about it? These letters confront the churches and they confront us. So, as we read these letters, as we consider what they say, how are we going to respond? Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord God, you're so good. You wrote us a letter 2,000 years ago. You preserved that letter through wars, through famine, through hardship. You preserved that letter through translations and Changes in dialect and changes in culture and changes in political situation. You delivered that letter to us. God, you're good. You're so good to us, and so I thank you for that. And God, as we think about these these admonitions that you've given us, these these calls that you've given us in this letter. God, I ask that you would help us to respond. Help us to not just read the letter, hear a sermon, walk out and be unchanged, then moving on to concerns about everything else that's going to happen today and in the week ahead. Help us to actually be arrested by the fact that the creator of the universe has spoken to us and that when you speak to us we need to respond maybe you're in here today and, and I asked that question are you ever going to hear Jesus say this one's mine and your response is I don't know You don't have to have an I don't know there. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody's looking.